Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Second Second Samuel chapter four. And as you're opening your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter chapter four, we're we're here in a section in a section that that talks about the assassination of Ishbosheth, the assassination of Saul's remaining son. He's a sole survivor. He's actually the king of Israel. And we know that David is the king of Judah. And so one tribe belonged to Judah, one nation. And, uh, and the remaining 12 tribes belong to Ishbosheth. This chapter is very short. It's only actually 12 verses. And there are many lessons in this chapter, though, as we examine the examination and the assassination, I should say, the assassination of Ishbosheth. You know, one thing about the Word of God, it's filled with wisdom, it is filled with knowledge, and, and this is what the Lord wants us to gather from His Word. And so with that, let's just go ahead and read the 12 verses, and then we'll examine them and and allow the Spirit of God to just speak to our very hearts. It says here in verse 1 of Second Samuel chapter 4, when Saul's, sons, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bayana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Ramon, the Bierothite of the children of Benjamin. For Bieroth was part of Benjamin because the Bierothites fled to Gitaim and had been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephishbosheth. Then the sons of Ramon, the Be'erothite, Rechab and Benah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab, Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is a head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Beorothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklog. In Ziklog. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. Therefore shall I not require his blood at your hand, and remove you from the earth. So David commanded his young men, and they executed him, executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them, hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. You know, when we look at this, I mean, there's just, I mean, the, the gruesome and gory murder of of Ishbosheth, the king of of Israel. You know, when you think about just these things that are taking place, one thing to, to understand is that 
these men and, and these actions are nothing but the flesh. And we're going to go over that. We're going to see what it means to be led by the flesh, what it means to be led by the Spirit. But, you know, the main topic or the main theme of today's study is looking at just self-seeking hearts. And so as we think about that, as you meditate on, on that theme of self-seeking hearts, it's really just a time to, to begin to think, is there anything within me that is self-seeking? Is there anything within me that, that desires to manipulate things in order to, to get something or to become something or, or to get position or whatever it may be? As we look at this, right, as, as the Lord wants to speak to all of us, you know, He wants to reveal to us just the, the wisdom that is, 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 that is in His Word and the wisdom that He wants us to gather from His Word. And so let's examine each Scripture and, and just look at the details and, and allow the Lord to speak to us. In verse 1 it says this, When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Okay, as we stop there, let's, let's talk about this, right? Let's talk about Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, he heard that Abner had died. And remember Abner. Abner was actually the commander of Saul's army. And so Abner, as Saul passed on, remember he's the one that anointed Ishbosheth as, as king over Israel. He didn't want to yield to God's anointed. And so as he wanted to rebel against God's anointed and against God. He, he anointed Ishbosheth. And one thing about Abner is that Abner was a very powerful man. He was strong in character, strong in, in, in just his personality. And, and he only used Ishbosheth as a puppet. In other words, what Abner wanted, Abner did. And Ishbosheth was just a man to, to hold the title, but he never made any decisions for the nation. And it tells us here that when Abner, as remember Abner, he said, you know what, I've had enough of this. David's kingdom is growing stronger and, and Ishbosheth, the kingdom I'm in, is growing weaker. And so he goes to David as he's probably convicted by God and, and, and finally realizes, you know what, this is God's anointed, right? And this is a man that should be raised up to be king over, over the nation, as God had, had said. And so he goes to David and he tells David that, you know, I think it's time. I think it's time for, for you to become king. And so, I have the power to give you the kingdom. I have the power to bring this, the kingdom into your hands. And so, David, of course, agrees. And he only has one condition, which is to return Michael, Michael, his wife, back to him, which was Saul's daughter. And so, as they agreed to this, Joab, we read about Joab last week. Remember, Joab was, was not very happy about this, right? Because... He saw him as a threat and most importantly he also was reminded he had that bitter root within his heart that we talked about last week and we talked about bitterness and how he says, you know what, there is no way that I'm going to allow Abner to live. So what he does with Abner is he kills him. You know what, he, he, he manipulates a meeting and he kills Abner and so this is where we're at. We're here and we see that, that, that Abner has now is dead and, and basically the nation of Israel hears of it. And so as they hear that, that Abner is dead, it says that Ishbosheth, remember, he's only the puppet king. He becomes feeble and weak, he says that as soon as he, he, that he heard of his death, he lost heart. And not only was he feeble and weak, he had no courage, but we also know and read that the nation of Israel also lost courage. You know, Abner was a backbone behind the nation at this time. He was the one that, that was basically calling the shots. He was the real strength that all the nation saw. And so when they find out that he's, that he's dead and, and as it's announced that the nation itself begins to lose heart. They also become feeble and weak. I want to talk about this, see, because when we look at this, right, we see Ishbosheth, who is a very weak king, weak in, in strength, weak in courage. And, and as soon as Abner is killed, the people begin to grow weak. They themselves lose courage. 
they themselves have no confidence in, in Ishbosheth. And I want to bring this to our attention because it's very important that we understand this, that every single one of us as Christians, we all have been called to be leaders. And I want to share this important truth to all of you, that no one wants to follow a weak leader. No one wants to follow a weak leader. No one has any confidence in weak people. And for us as Christians, you and I have been called to be leader because our strength is from the Lord. Our strength is not from anyone else. We stand strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And understand this, that when you become weak, when you become, you know what, feeble and, and losing courage, in other words, you're lacking confidence in the Lord, no one's really going to want to follow your lead. Understand this. See, when the, God told the nation of Israel, I've called you guys to be heads and not the tails. I've called you guys to be leaders because, again, you must understand that, that your strength is in me. It's not in you. You guys have no strength, but you have me living within you. And when you walk in this confidence, understand this, is that people will look at you and people will admire you. They may hate you, but they will admire you. And understand this, is that people want to follow strong leaders. People don't want to follow anybody weak. People don't want to follow people that are losing faith, that, look, that lack confidence. That's what you have in Ishbosheth. Nobody wants to follow an Ishbosheth. They want to follow somebody that's strong. And, and this is just a reminder for us as Christians that we have been called to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and, and to be these strong leaders because our trust and our confidence is in Him and not in anything else or anyone else. This is why, remember the Lord, He told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, He said, Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The reminder that God is with us, this is why we are to be strong. This is why we are to be of good courage. This is why we're not to be afraid or be dismayed. This is why we are not to be weak. And the question to all of you is, do you display the courage of God? Do you display this courage from God? You know, only you know, right? Only do you, you know what's going on within you. How do people view you? Do people view you as a strong and bold and courageous leader? Or do they view you as a weak leader? Manipulated and, and told what to do versus doing the things that God has commanded and asked you to do. You know, as we keep reading in verse 2, it says this, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baanah, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Ramon, the Berothite of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was part of Benjamin, because the Berothites fled to Gitiam and have been sojourners there until this day. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You know, the writer first introduces us to, to these brothers. These two brothers named Bainam and Rechab, right? These guys were brothers and they were actually captains in Ishbosheth's army. And then we're introduced to Mephibosheth. You know what? And we're going to cover Mephibosheth when we get to chapter 9 and he's mentioned in other chapters. But here the writer just wants to introduce him to us. You know, again, the lineage of Saul. Understand this, the, the, the children of Saul, they were all passing away, right? All of his sons had died in there in the, in the battle against the Philistines, and, and you had Ishbosheth that was alive, and then the writer mentions Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan. And remember, Jonathan and David were knitted together by one spirit. They had the same spirit of faith, the same spirit that, 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 that they, of faith that they admired in one another. Remember, these, both, these men walked by faith. They were amazing soldiers for Christ. 
And this is what God looks for, right? He looks for amazing soldiers for Christ, warriors for Christ. And we know that David and Jonathan were knitted together because they saw the faith that they had in God. They both had this same courageous, strong faith in God, not allowing them to feel to become weak when, when the enemy was overpowering them or, or outnumbered them, but they remained strong in their faith. And then the writer gives us details of Mephibosheth. You know, he became a cripple. He was lame and he couldn't walk. And what happened is that when he was five years old and when King Saul and Jonathan were in the battle against the Philistines, you know, they heard that, that they lost the battle and that Jonathan was dead and so was King Saul. So the nurse that had him, that was his caretaker, she was fearful for his life, right? Because they know that, you know what now? The king and his son, who would have probably been the next to the, the next in line to the throne, they're dead. So to protect them, she, she carries them at five years old and, and as she's running, somehow she fell and he becomes a cripple. Don't, it doesn't really tell us exactly what, when, what happened there, but he fell and he became a cripple. And so we have these descendants that are the only living survivors here. And as we go on now to verse 5, it says this, Then the sons of Ramon, the Berothite, Rechab and Baanah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house, as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed, in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. You know, as we see this, right, as we see what's going on here, we see this gory and gruesome murder. You know, these two brothers that we have here, we have these brothers. They go to the home at the home of Ishbosheth at noontime. And they pretend there to get supplies, right? Remember, these were captains of Ishbosheth, so of course they had the liberty to go in and out. And having the liberty to go in and out, no one suspected anything of them, right? As, as we know that there, there is captains. And so they finally get into the bedroom of Ishbosheth. And what's the first thing they do is they stab him in the stomach. Imagine, this is. This is crazy stuff. These are his captains, right? And so they wait for his death, right? As they stab him in the stomach, they, I'm sure they're looking at him, making sure that he's dead. And, and then after that, they decapitate him. In other words, they cut off his head. They cut off his head and they escaped. And they say that they're running through the plains, right? Making sure that no one's following them. And they're carrying the head of Ishbosheth. Why this betrayal? We think about this, right? Why this betrayal? Why this gruesome murder? I want to share with you the hearts of these two men. When you look at these two men, these two men were opportunists. In other words, these two men were self-seeking. These guys were willing to do whatever they can to gain position. But you think to yourself, you know what, why murder? I want you to understand that when you look at these two men, these two men were not led of the Lord. Even though the Lord had promised the kingdom to David. Understand that the Lord didn't move these men to kill Ishbosheth. This is, this is evil. This is something that is, that is just of the flesh. This is demonic what is going on here. You know, these men are not led of the Lord. These are led of their flesh. Though God is sovereign over all, and He gives us all a free will, right? We have the free choice to do as we wish. And these men were not following the Lord, and as they weren't following the Lord, they decide to, to do something, and, and they decide to murder their king. When you think about this, right? Their king was asleep, and as they stabbed him in the stomach, they cut off his head. And when you think about why they would do this, as I mentioned, self-seeking opportunists. See, remember, Abner was dead and they knew this. You know what? This was a backbone behind the nation. And they had known that the kingdom of David 
was actually growing stronger and the kingdom of Ishbosheth, the Bible tells us, was growing weaker. And so what they decide to do is they decide to do something that's demonic. They decide to say, you know what? We want position, right? We want to go on David's side. We want to be on the winning side. I want to read to you something from James chapter 3 and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time in. Because this is exactly what's going on here. In James chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, it says this, But if you have bitter envy, okay, if you have bitter envy, remember this, if there is envy within you, and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, it is sensual, it is demonic. In other words, this is not of the Lord. This is not of God. This is not from the heavens above. It says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Let's talk about these two things that he's talking about. He's talking about envy and self-seeking. And, and these men were, for whatever reason, probably we know that they were self-seeking. They murdered their own king. They, they wanted position. They were looking for a reward, as we're going to read. But there was also some sort of envy within them. They wanted something. They wanted position within David's kingdom. Let's talk about envy. And as we talk about these things, it's, it's important that we understand them so that we can identify any of these characteristics within your heart. Because God wants us to, to know these things. He wants the Bible to, to work as a mirror for us to see ourselves. Envy is... Wishing you had what someone else has. In other words, you have resentment with others who have what you want. You have resentment with others who have what you want. You want what somebody else has. And what are these things that other people have? Some people have position, right? They have good jobs. They have money. Some have houses. Some have nice clothes, nice shoes. Some have, you know what? Different, you know, different things, different possessions, husbands, wives, maybe, you know, these are husbands and wives that you would want. You know, whatever they have, you begin to want it, you begin to envy it, you begin to have resentment towards them because they have these people, these things, whatever they have. And this is what begins to, to grow and to, to begin to to increase within your hearts. And then you are willing to do whatever it takes to get what they have. Okay? And understand this, that there are people that want somebody else's job and what do they do? They sabotage them, right? They bring up things about them so that they can lose their job. Maybe some want somebody's wife or husband and they start doing things to get their husbands or their wives to sleep with them, to be with them. Maybe they want their possessions, whatever it is. Something is in you that is not of the Lord. The Bible tells us that we are to be content with what we have. Don't start envying what others have. Like Paul says, I'm content in whatever state I'm in. I'm happy when I don't have anything and I'm happy when I have an abundance of things. See, look at what Proverbs says here in 14. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. See, this wisdom from the book of Proverbs is is giving us a sense that envy decays your bones. Okay? It illustrates to us, as it says there, that it is rottenness to the bones. It illustrates to us that it gives us a picture that bones are decomposing when there is envy within you. You know, when you think about this emotion, if you can't control it, it's, it's going to move you to harm somebody. It's going to move you to hurt somebody else because you want what they have. When you look at Shakespeare... You know what he described envy as? As a green sickness. Why would he say it's a green sickness? 
See, when you look at people, right, that are deadly sick, don't they have a greenish tone to them? See, he was trying to get us to understand that you have a deadly, you look deadly, you are, you have this deadly sickness within you, you have this green disease, and that's why he calls it the green sickness. See, when we look at Galatians 5, it talks about the flesh, right? And we know, as I mentioned to you, that if you're not walking in the Spirit, you're walking in the flesh. You know, the Bible has a way of giving us these truths. It has a way of, of telling us what's wrong and what's not. I want you to understand one thing. Your conscience, understand this. Your conscience, when you do something wrong, it immediately gives you a checkpoint. It immediately sparks something within you to know that, you know what, this is wrong. What's awesome about all of this too is that when we become believers, we have the Spirit of God within us. And then the Spirit of God begins to convict you of these things. And this is what's so amazing. And then we have the Word of God, which is so awesome, that tells us what's wrong. It tells us what's sin. And and in Galatians chapter 5, it tells us here in verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are... Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. And we don't have time to go over them, but I want to bring you to the attention of these. Selfish ambitions, which is what we're going to be talking about. Dissensions, heresies. It talks about envy there. As you can see there, there is envy. Murders, which we see these men doing. Drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are practicing these things, understand this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not telling you if you slip up and fall. You know what, if you slip up and stumble and you do one of these things, it's not talking about that. It's, a, it's talking about those that like to practice these things. Those that are saying, man, I can't wait for this weekend. I can't wait to go and, and do, go and drink. Go and smoke pot. Go and do meth. Go and sleep with my girlfriend. You know what? These are the ones that are practicing these things. These are the ones that are living in this lifestyle. And yet they call themselves Christian. And that's what today you see this everywhere. Everybody, uh, so many, not everybody, so many people are calling themselves Christians, but yet they don't want to do what the Bible says. They don't want to practice this. They don't want to place their faith in Jesus. But what's sad is when People are saying, yeah, you know what, I go to church, I go to a Calvary chapel, I go here, and yet they practice these things. As we talked about envy, I want to talk about now selfish ambitions. What is selfish ambition? It means to be self-seeking. What we read here in James chapter 3, that's what it means. It means to be self-seeking. See, you're always looking out for your own interests. That's what that means. Self-seeking is saying, you know what? It's all about me. Okay? And today we live in a me world, don't we? And it's all about me. And that's what it says. That's what self-seeking is. It's, it's always looking out for my own interests above the interest of anyone else. In other words, you know what? I really don't care about you guys. It's all about me. It's the me world, right? It's all about what I want. What I want to get. It's about, you know what, my position, it's my needs, my wants. This is what I want. I want to get ahead. And I'm going to lie, cheat, and murder to get whatever I want. That's what a self-seeking, that's what heart is, that's what a self, self, uh, selfish ambition is. See, if you are yielding to the Spirit on a daily basis, you won't be yielding to the flesh. You and I must be yielding to the Spirit of God on a daily basis to avoid yielding to the flesh, to avoid doing these things. If you don't wake up in the morning and, and seek the Lord, right? And you don't seek Him because you have to. You seek Him because you want to. Remember, I want us to understand that we want to do these things. And we want to yield to the Spirit of God. And, and it's important that we be connected to the Spirit of God and and we got to be yielding to Him, right? And, and as you yield to Him, then you're not going to yield to your flesh. Because see, one has to be controlling you. 
It's either your flesh that's going to control you or it's your spirit that's going to con- or the God's spirit that's going to control you. See, before we came to know the Lord, who was controlling us? Our flesh. When we became believers, when we surrendered ourselves to the Lord, who began to take control of us? The spirit of God. See, on a daily basis, you must make it your aim to be yielded to the Spirit of God. Otherwise, the flesh is going to take control. The flesh is going to become dominant within you. You've got to feed the Spirit, right? And we talked about this before. How is it that you feed the Spirit? You know what? You desire to read the Word. You desire to pray. You desire to come to fellowship. You make it your aim to, to do and to obey the Word of God. That's what it means to, you know what, to feed the Spirit, right? Because if you're not feeding the Spirit, then you're going to definitely feed the flesh. And you're going to be living these things out. You're going to be, all of a sudden, it, you begin to practice these things. How many of you have experienced this, right? When, when sort of you're in a backslidden state and you begin to, to do something and it just snowballs and you find yourself just, you know what, in a big mess. And then you're finally, you know what, I can't stand it anymore. You know what? I'm back to where I was before. You know what? These things happen and, and we must examine ourselves, right? Examine ourselves where we're at. You know, as we talk about self-seeking, you know, are you, even though you're not going to murder anybody, even though you may not be physical, but are you willing to harm the reputation of others? Are you willing to take, you know what? Their jobs and and their friends, and their girlfriends, or their wives, or their husbands. If you're willing to hurt others to get ahead, then understand this, you are in the flesh. And these two brothers, understand this, they wanted position in David's kingdom. They were opportunists, they were self-seeking, and they moved into murder, which are all the works of the flesh. So what happens next? Verse 8 tells us, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. In other words, the brothers bring him the head. Imagine this for David to see the head of Ishbosheth, right? As they put it before David and they said, Here's his head. The son of King Saul, your enemy, who sought to kill you. The Lord has had revenge today on Saul and his family. And David responds and says this, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bene, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Imagine that. He says this. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Well, basically, David is saying, you know what? As the Lord lives, He rescues me from all troubles. In other words, I don't need your help. This is what's so awesome. David is telling him, I didn't need your help against my enemies. The Lord is my defense. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Lord is my defense. I don't need you to help me out because it's the Lord that is my defense. And this is something for us, right, to, to remember and to be reminded of. You know what? You don't need to take matters into your own hands. You don't be, need to be manipulating things. You know what? You don't need to be seeking all these things. You know what? The Lord is our defense. When the enemy comes against us, He's our defense. You know what? We don't need help of bringing people down. It's, it's up to the Lord to do this. The Lord is sovereign over all things. The Lord is our defense. Remember, He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And you and I don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to be self-seeking. We don't need to manipulate things. If we trust that God is on the throne, then He will work things out for each of us. You and I have been called to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. You are to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Verse 10 goes on to say, as he describes something that happened, when someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead. 
thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Zyklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. David shares the story of the Amalekite. Remember, this is in Second Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 through 16. You know what? There was this Amalekite who claimed to have killed King Saul. And as I shared with you when we went over these scriptures, I don't really believe that he was the one that killed King Saul. But he comes in and King Saul was wounded in the battlefield and he took the crown from, from Saul and he claims to have killed King Saul. And he came to David seeking a reward. And David says, you know what? You have killed, you have come against the Lord's anointed. And in coming against the Lord's anointed, you know what? You will be killed. And so David orders his death. And this is what he reminds them. He's reminding them, you did, you're doing the same thing. Look at what it says in verse 11. He says, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, on his bed, therefore shall I not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. You know what? David says, you guys were seeking a reward. And he calls them for what they are. This is what's so awesome about David. He calls them for what they are. He says that they are wicked men that killed a righteous person. They are wicked men that called a righteous person. You know, one of the things that... that and I'm going to give you some insight here. When, whenever you talk to people, and this is something that, that I have been taught, and this is something that, that my wife actually had... had revealed this to me, she said that, you know what, when you talk to people, see, you can never judge what's in a person's heart. Right? You, you, don't, you can't judge what's in there. You don't know what's in their heart. The only thing that you can call them on, then, call them on is really their behavior. Right? That's what we're called to do is to judge the behavior, not to judge their heart. You and I are called only to judge behavior. You can only call out behavior in people you are not to judge their hearts. You can't say, I know what's in your heart. Because you don't know what's in their heart. They don't even know what's in their heart. Only God knows what's in their heart, right? But for us, we can definitely identify bad behavior. And that's what we call people on. You call them out on their bad behavior. And so this is what David does, right? He calls them out on their bad behavior. And he tells them, you know what? Ishbosheth didn't do anything wrong. He was only a puppet king, right? But he was killed by self-seeking men. And so what does David do? David commands her death and they both were killed and hung. And then he tells us the head of Ishbosheth was buried by the tomb of Abner. You know, when we look at this, right? We were reading in James chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. When we look at that, right, we see what's demonic, we see what's, what comes from your flesh. What is it that God calls us to do? See, James goes on to give us this, right? He goes on to talk about this in, in, in James chapter 3, verse 17, and I really believe that this is fitting for us today. It says there, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, it is then peaceable, it is gentle, it is willing to yield full of mercy and good fruits. It is without partiality and without hypocrisy. Okay, so it's contrary to being envious and self-seeking. Let's talk about this wisdom that is from above. Okay, this wisdom. I want you to know one thing, that wisdom and knowledge are a recurring theme in the Bible. Okay? But I want you to understand one thing is that they are not the same thing. Even though they are recurring in the Bible, many times many of us will say knowledge and wisdom and we think that they're the same thing. I want you to know that they are not the same thing. I'm going to give you what knowledge is and then I'm going to give you what Scripture is. Knowledge is information. Okay, Knowledge is information gathered in or out of Scriptures, right? That's what knowledge is. Knowledge is information. And then you can add either in or out of the Scriptures. What is wisdom? 
Wisdom acts properly upon that knowledge. In other words, it has a fitting application to what you know. In other words, you know what? I know this thing and now how am I going to react to it? Okay? Let me give you some scenarios so that you understand this. And we can look at any sin, right? We can look at the the sins of the flesh there. Knowledge understands from the scriptures, right? That we can't fornicate, that we can't do drugs, that we shouldn't be drunkards, that we shouldn't be envious, that we shouldn't be jealous. We understand these things, right? And what is wisdom? Wisdom is to say, you know what? You run from it. That's what wisdom does, right? It's like knowledge is knowing that, you know what? The light has turned red. It's red. And what do I do when the lights are red? I put my brake on the pedal, right? To stop the car. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge. What is it that you're going to do with this knowledge? What is it that you're going to do with it? And I want to give you one important truth here. Knowledge, I want you to know this. Knowledge can exist. It can exist. Understand this. Knowledge can exist without wisdom. Knowledge can exist without wisdom, but wisdom cannot exist without knowledge. See, knowledge is knowing things, right? It's information. But see, wisdom can't exist without knowledge, right? If I don't have the information, I don't know what to do with it. I must have knowledge in order to know what to do. When we talk about wisdom, right? Wisdom from God. Everybody, everybody here should desire wisdom. I want you to know this. One of your prayers on a daily basis, if you want to know what to pray for, is ask for wisdom. It's very important in our walk with Christ because we're given so much on a daily basis. What are you to do with these things that you are confronted with, with the information that you have? If you want to gain wisdom, I'm going to give you what I do. I read, aside from my daily reading, on a daily basis, I read from the book of Proverbs. I read a chapter a day. A chapter a day of the book of Proverbs. And remember, Proverbs has how many? 31 days. So you get to read one every month. Apart from that, I do my daily reading. Why? Because I know that in order to gain wisdom, I gain it from the Scriptures. See, this is important for us, right? We gain wisdom from the Scriptures. Look at what Proverbs tells us in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. It says, The Proverbs, basically from King Solomon, is to know wisdom and and instruction. This is what you gain from the book of Proverbs. You gain wisdom and instruction. You're told certain things and how to react to them, right? How to apply them to your lives. That's what wisdom is. He gives you all of these facts and it covers so much on a daily basis. Everything that you're confronted with in life, you can gain under, you can gain wisdom from the scriptures on how to deal with it. It goes on to say to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. In other words, to perceive the words of understanding. You get these things and then you know how to, how to apply them with wisdom. And then if I jump down to verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, wisdom, of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They want none of it. And what's awesome about the book of Proverbs is it talks about wisdom as, as a female, as a woman crying from the gates, saying, I have wisdom for all of you. I want to give you life. And wisdom is there for everybody to take. But we know that fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to hear. They think they know it all, right? I want you to know this. That wisdom, not only do we get it from the Scriptures, but we also get it from Jesus Christ Himself, from God. See, as it says there, right? To fear the Lord is to start on the path to knowledge. But understand this, God will begin to provide us with wisdom through Christ. Because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says this, But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Wisdom 
comes from Jesus Christ. If you want wisdom, you must surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. There's no other way to receive it. And then the, the Scriptures come to life and, and we begin to receive instruction and, and how to apply this and how to, you know, how to do, you know, when we're confronted with, with things, what are we to do with it? How are we to apply them? We've got to finish in James and we're out of time here, but I'm going to just go quickly through it. This wisdom from above, as it says, but the wisdom from above it is pure. In other words, it is not polluted or tainted with evil. It is peaceable. In other words, if you want to know if you have wisdom, you can be assured that you will be living this way. You're not going to be tainted with evil. It's going to be peaceable. In other words, you're not going to be having conflict with others. It's gentle. In other words, it's kind. It's temperate. It is willing to yield. In other words, it's submissive to others. Remember, no, we're not better than anyone else. We submit to one another is what the Scriptures tell us. It goes on to say that it is full of mercy. It is full of mercy. In other words, it is compassionate and forgiving. This is what wisdom is. Wisdom tells us, you know what, the Word of God says that we must forgive. And if we don't forgive, then God's not going to forgive us. So we want to be forgiving of others. It tells us there in James 3.17, it bears good fruit. In other words, there's going to be fruit in your life. Imagine this, when, there's, when you are walking in wisdom, there is fruit that is being birthed all around you. And it's not like you're looking at it or thinking about it, it just naturally comes out. It's like fruit that comes from a fruit tree. You know, I looked at my dwarf avocado trees this morning and I see all these little avocados coming out, right? And I don't hear them struggling to come out. It just, they just naturally come out. It says that wisdom from above, it is without partiality. In other words, it has no favorites. It loves everyone the same. Just as the Lord says, I love everyone the same. Because I bring rain on the just and the unjust. I let the, my sun shine on the good and the evil. He loves us all the same. There's no partiality. Wisdom is without hypocrisy. In other words, it's not pretending to be something that you're not. You are transparent. That's what wisdom calls us to do, right? This is wisdom from above. It tells us to, that, that it is pure when we're walking in purity, when we're peaceable, when we're gentle, when we're willing to yield, submissive, when we're full of mercy. It's bearing good fruit. It's without partiality. It's without hypocrisy. And you know what the Bible says on this? Who wants wisdom? How many of us want wisdom here? I think all of us, right? We all want wisdom. And look at what the Bible says about this. And we're going to close with this. If In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's there for the asking. And when you read the book of Proverbs, it reveals to us that she is wanting to give it all to you. It says that wisdom was there when Jesus created all the heavens and all the earth. She saw it all going on. She was there from the very beginning because it's from God. When the men, remember the apostles when they were, when they were looking for deacons for people to serve the people? They looked for three qualities in men that they wanted to raise up to serve the people. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. One was, they had good reputation. Two was, they were filled with the Spirit. And three was, they had wisdom. Wisdom from above. Wisdom is critical for our lives as Christians. And God is asking us, yearn after it, ask for it. I have it and I'm wanting to give it. And so with that, we're going to close. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for just the insight that You've given us, Lord, when it comes to the flesh, the spirit, when it comes to envy, self-seeking, self-seeking people, Lord. 
when it comes to this wisdom from above, Lord. The wisdom that David had, the wisdom that he exercised, Lord, and in gathering information, he knew exactly how to apply. He knew exactly what to do. I'm going to give this out because as we look at the Scriptures, if there's anyone that is practicing the things of the flesh, if there's anyone that is living a lifestyle of these things, I give you an opportunity to make things right with God. I want everyone's eyes to close. I want everyone's heads bowed and there's anyone here that wants to make things right with the Lord. And as I read the list quickly through it, I know that if you're walking in these things, your conscience, as well as the Spirit of God, was convicting you. And you want to make things right with God, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to raise your hand and to say, Yes, Lord, forgive me of these things. I want to make things right. Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Lord, you see these hands that went up. I'm going to ask you to say this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for sinning against you. I ask for your forgiveness. I want you to come into my heart. I don't want to live like this anymore. I need your power, your strength. Holy Spirit, give me the power to do what is right. You have it. It's all in you. Dwell within me and overflow from me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for not casting me away in my sin, but willing to receive me as I confess and repent. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Your grace and your mercy are so amazing. Your love for me is like no other. And I pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to do one more thing here and you know, if there's anybody here that wants wisdom, I'm going to just say a prayer here. And wisdom is crying at this, in this place and asking us to, to receive her wisdom, the wisdom from God, the wisdom from the Scriptures. I'm going to have you repeat a prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I come to you with an open heart. I want your wisdom. Your word says that you will give to those who ask. I'm asking. And I'm believing by faith that I am receiving. And I pray this in Jesus' name.